So, you know, they, they say confession is good for the soul. And so just like I did uh, two Sundays ago when I confessed to you about being a news junkie, I have another confession for you today. Uh, and here it is. I can't swim. Uh, yeah, oh my. <laughs> uh, and so subsequently, I am scared to death of the water. Uh, I grew up in the middle of nowhere uh, with no place to learn to swim as a kid, even if I had wanted to. Uh, and so subsequently uh, never did, and hence the fear. Uh, and I'm not proud of it, it's just a fact. Um, but here's another, if collectively we're not too proud to admit it. Uh, many of us American Protestants are scared of water too, and maybe not of the local swimming hole uh, or the pool at your park, but of the waters of baptism. And I can feel that fear start to creep over me even as I prepared to write this message because all too often we church folk like to argue and fight and divide up into denominational camps the minute the very word baptism is mentioned, uh, instead of focusing on all the meaning behind it that unites us. And so uh, it's kind of one of those third rails that we uh, grab today with more than a little hesitation. And I know we have differences of opinion even among this very tight-knit group, uh, but it's an issue that presents itself uh, all the same in our lectionary text for this morning. Uh, in Matthew chapter 3, in the story of the baptism of our Lord. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to kind of set the scene for you and give you just a, a little extra context on the story uh, from the lead-up that's given to us in John's Gospel in chapter 1. And so two texts again this morning, uh, and I want us to look at them together, and I invite you to listen for the voice of the Spirit uh, to teach us collectively. And so please open your Bibles. I hope you have your Bibles with you so that we can look at this together. And I'm going to be reading John chapter 1, uh, verses 19 to 31 for our first reading. John writes, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And now they had sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And then our second reading is Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, uh, verses 13 to 17. So Matthew chapter 3, 13 to 17. Uh, and then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? 
But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, our Father, by your Holy Spirit, you let John recognize Jesus as the Lamb of God. And so grant to us, Lord, that same vision today. Enlighten our minds, open our eyes, and show us, Father, the full measure of your Son in the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of your most holy word for the sake of Christ, your Son. Amen. And so, you know, a lot has happened uh, chronologically, kind of as we've worshipped together in these past few weeks. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Uh, we were told of his birth by hosts of angels, shepherds, bright stars. Uh, the child and his mother and father were visited by wise men who brought them gifts. Uh, Mary and Joseph and the infant Jesus had to flee to Egypt in terror of King Herod and his murderous rage. We've seen the family settle in Nazareth, and, uh, and Jesus grew up. And now today, in the same way kind of that our Children's growing up years seem to have sped by. Uh, Sue, too, have Jesus' growing up years sped by. And now, in the text, Jesus and his cousin John are both grown men, both about 30 years old. And we don't know uh, exactly how well they knew each other, but uh, since we do know that Mary went to visit Elizabeth, who was John's mother, after learning of her pregnancy, and, and spent time with her, it would, would seem reasonable these two guys would have at least known that they were each other's cousins. And humanly speaking, the older cousin, John, had created quite an interesting life for himself, hadn't he? Uh, he was definitely his own man. Uh, he lived off the land, just simply, uh, crudely even, focusing entirely on the message that he had been commissioned by God to bring. And, and he's intense. Uh, and he's focused. And he's convinced of his divine calling and on the edge of being, if we're honest, uh, being or at least seeming to be just a little bit crazy, right? Wearing camel's hair coats, uh, crunching on honey-covered locusts. But he sure can draw a crowd uh, because whenever John preached, and boy, could he preach, John gathered people to listen, thousands of men and women. Uh, in fact, some scholars have suggested that as many as 300,000 people had come to be baptized by John. Not all on one day, of course, but just, just continually coming and coming. And they came from all over Judea and all over Jerusalem. But then one day there was someone different in the midst of that usual crowd. Someone unlike all the others who had come to join in it before. A man from Galilee who weaves his way through that crowd, sliding past men's shoulders and around women's elbows until he reaches the shore and lets the water lap at his ankles. Even as he's listening to John's roaring voice, which likely stopped mid-sentence when he sees him, without a word, he walks right up to his cousin, as countless others have before him, ready to be baptized, uh, leaving poor John to wonder, what in the world is going on? What does this mean? Have you ever wondered that when you read this story? Because there's a lot going on, actually. Uh, and several things are happening in that moment, 
And in the time that I have left, I want to look at as many of them as I can, but don't get scared because I, I have my clock set up here. I told Sunday school I had seven points, but don't get scared. Uh, but you may be scared for a different reason, as I said in the opening, because whenever people start talking about baptism, about uh, what happens in baptism and who baptism is for and the mechanics of how baptism is performed, many of us start twisting in our seats, uh, imagining superstitious Roman Catholic priestcraft and automatic guarantees of salvation and arguments over Pado versus Credo start swirling around in our heads and threaten to drown us all in our own wake before we even get the conversation off the ground. But let me suggest to you today that there are some things, and, and I would say many things actually, that we could absolutely agree on so we don't have to throw out the proverbial baby with the baptismal waters. And the first of those things is, uh, number one on my list is that baptism is a Trinitarian event, right? The Father speaks, and the Spirit is sent down to the Son. And so all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one God, now are united together in operation and in fulfillment of the promise to save a people for himself. And that's important, guys, because we don't often uh, focus enough on the importance of the Trinity, do we? Uh, the danger being that we can, for all intents and purposes, become practicing Unitarians in our worship. Uh, and it happens in lots of different ways. Our, uh, our brothers and sisters in the Pentecostal church often overemphasize the movement of the Holy Spirit at the expense of Christ. Uh, some modern seeker-friendly churches focus on just, you just hear them talk about God all the time, about God, uh, as opposed to Son and Holy Spirit. And, and even here, in this church, we have to be careful because we want to make sure that while we constantly proclaim the supremacy and the majesty of Christ, that we always do it in the context of the Trinity. Uh, ju just as uh, Paul said through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Philippians 2.10, he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus is Lord. But all of this, guys, through the Holy Spirit, and to the glory of God the Father, right? And all three are involved in Jesus' baptism. The whole Trinitarian family was participating, and our baptism, being baptized in union with Christ, means we've joined that family as well. That's why we can sing Family of God at the end of the church each week. Uh, and our baptism into that name of Father, Son, and Spirit means we now share the family name, and we share intimate access that that family name brings because number two on my list, secondly, is that Christ's baptism gives access to heaven. See, when, when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were opened to him. And for those of us in him, we have access to the heavenly throne as well, just as we prayed this morning. With the full promise and invitation of Hebrews 4.16 that says, Let us come with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so our baptism calls us into a life of prayer with and for the people of God. Because thirdly, baptism means that we have received the gift of the Spirit. Do you know, just as the Spirit of God descended on Jesus bodily at the Jordan River, that same baptism is given to his body, the church at Pentecost. 
so that anyone entering now into the body of Christ, entering the church, receives the gift of the Spirit, uniting us in a bond of love with the Father and with the Son and with the rest of the members of the universal family of God, the universal faith. Because number four, and I told you I was going to get to all of these, so we're going quick. Got to keep up. Uh, fourthly, baptism, church, is a declaration of adoption. Okay. See, at baptism, God declared Jesus to be his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. And in Christ Jesus, we are declared sons and daughters of the living God, people in whom the Father delights. Meaning, church, that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit don't just merely tolerate you, they delight in you. You're his beloved, his beloved children through adoption. And it's a sign that Jesus was willing to play the role of family mediator. He's willing to be our redeemer. And in baptism, Jesus is stepping down to our level. He's ready to accept that humiliation in our stead, in the role of Messiah, in the role of Savior, one that fulfilled all the full terms of God's covenant of separation from sin. Because remember, Jesus didn't need a baptism of repentance, did he? Right? He didn't have any sin to repent from. He, he didn't even really need to repent on our behalf. He could have said, hey, folks, you, you guys are on your own. But instead, he identifies himself with us. And he begins that process of what has been called the great exchange. Because, you see, we need righteousness to be acceptable to God, but we don't have it. What we have is sin. And God has what we need and could never earn, and that's righteousness. We, we only have what God hates and rejects in sin. And so what's God's answer to the situation? Well, his answer is Jesus Christ, the Son of God who not only died in our place and bore the condemnation of our sin, but lived in our place, fulfilling everything the Torah law requires. And, and it's his act of obedience on our behalf. See, that's the, that's the reason this is important. This is not just a theological curiosity because, you see, Jesus' time on the cross is what's been called his passive obedience. It's what he allowed to happen to himself for the payment of our sin debt. But, brothers and sisters, Christ did more than just die for us. He lived for us. He had to. Uh, think about it. Otherwise, why didn't Jesus just ascend straight down from heaven, go directly to the cross, and be done with the whole thing in one weekend? Right? I mean, why live 33-odd years on the planet knowing where it was headed? Why not just get it done on day one? I'll give you a quick example. For those of you that have been here any length of time, you've heard me share it in Bible study or Sunday school. But for those that hadn't heard it, I think this illustration is helpful. Just imagine that you owe someone $100 million, a debt you could never possibly repay. And now someone suddenly comes along and pays that debt, and you don't owe anything at all anymore. But you don't have anything either, do you? Right? I mean, you've, you've gone from 100 million in the hole uh, up to zero. But that's all you have is zero. And now imagine that same scenario, but this time someone comes along and not only pays your 100 million dollars in debt, but hands you another 100 million to keep and credits it to your account. You see, that's what Christ has done for us. He's done that both through his passive obedience on the cross where he paid the debt for our sins but also through his active obedience in the sinless life that he lived, right? willingly and actively obeying all of God's regulations, doing all of that that led him right up to the moment of his baptism as he's bringing us life. Not, not that we bring our lives to him, but he brings his to ours because, brothers and sisters, uh, fifthly, 
Baptism is the declaration of God about us and not our personal declaration about God. Right? I want you to think about that. Baptism is God's declaration about us and not our declaration about God. See, it's God who's speaking in baptism, and we're to listen. It's his voice that speaks from heaven, and we dare not interrupt, but instead we passively receive what God says about us. Because, brothers and sisters, as with all things, he is the sovereign author and initiator of our faith. And that's the reason, incidentally, why you don't ever have to be baptized more than just once. Right? Because it's God's Holy Spirit that's the efficacy of the sacrament and not our opinions or our preferences or our doctrinal encampments, um, as sincere as they may be. And here's why. <clears throat> because number six, baptism is an act of divine deliverance. You see, the imagery of Jesus' baptism being in the Jordan River with the Spirit resting on him in the form of a dove uh, points to just to three subpoints I want to give you here, three distinct yet related events I want to give you quickly. And the first of those is God's sovereign creation of everything from nothing. Remember that time in Genesis chapter 1 when we read the earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Right, the Hebrew word there for moved means that he brooded or, or hovered like a, a bird broods over eggs to bring it life. And in the same way, baptism signals our initiation into a new life in Christ. In, in writing on this in the second century, a Christian scholar Tertullian said the primeval hovering of the Spirit of God over the waters is typical of baptism with the universal element of water thus made a channel of sanctification from the beginning that would naturally cling to and linger over the waters of the baptized. It's in that uh, same vein, secondly, the spirit resting on Jesus in the form of a dove looks back to that time when God delivered Noah and his family through the floodwaters into a new creation, uh, which the apostle Peter says was a form of baptism. First Peter chapter 3. And he writes, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few, that is, eight lives were saved through water and baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, here our Lord passing through the river Jordan harkens back to the time when Israel passed through the waters into the promised land. One Lutheran scholar wrote on this, the crossing of the Red Sea is a strong symbol of God's victory for his people, where the enemies of God are destroyed in the water just as we see sin being drowned in the waters of baptism, where the slavery to sin is broken, new life is ushered in. Baptism is thus seen more in terms of deliverance and creation than in terms of washing for purification, even as our baptism in Christ means we have entered into a new creation, namely the church, so that you and I are no longer of the world that stands in opposition to God. And finally, my very last point, brothers and sisters, is baptism is a calling to a mission. In a January 2018 article in uh, Kyperian Commentary magazine, uh, an author wrote this. He said, to be the son of God was not a static position of privilege for Jesus. Being the son meant that he had a mission as the last Adam to take dominion of the world through his death and resurrection and ascension and continuing reign. 
And being baptized into Christ means that we share that same mission. We share that mission with the last Adam now who came to undo all that has befallen his creation in sin. This one, this Christ standing in the waters of the Jordan who hears the Father's voice saying, This is my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. And you know, I have no doubt that was a word that John the Baptist needed to hear right then. No doubt that was a word that the others that were standing around that day needed to hear. They needed that corroboration of the Father as to the identity of Jesus as His eternal Son. But, you know, I think honestly, in this instance, that was just as much for Jesus as for anyone else. Right? Even here in the splendor of the glory of heaven being open above the person of Christ incarnate, the Father still needed to say, Son, I love you. And I want you to know that. Many of us are fathers. Some of you fathers have spoken along those lines to your son at important moments in their lives too as maybe they've gone off to college, gotten married, perhaps maybe more importantly when they've gone off to face a trial or a difficulty. Maybe you've said words like that. Maybe you've said, son, I, I love you. I want you to know that. I, I want you to know that even when you don't hear my voice. I want you to know that even when it seems like I'm far away. And brothers and sisters, there would be such a moment for our Lord Jesus at the cross. Remember as he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here today, the Father is speaking words of reassurance, saying to him, you are my son and I love you. And surely that message would have been a light to him in those dark days that he knew were ahead. And brothers and sisters, that same message can be a light for the dark days that we have ahead. So don't be afraid. Jesus has gone through the water first so that we could follow him and learn what God says about us when he applies the waters of baptism to us. His baptism is our baptism. And so our baptism through Jesus becomes more than just repentance. It's more than just the water. Baptism becomes the occasion on which we receive a whole new identity. So don't be afraid of the water. Remember your baptism today if you can. Or rejoice in knowing your parents had it done for you if you can't, because God knows you either way. He knew your name before you were baptized, and he knows it after. So God knows us through and through, and he claims us as his own, and nothing in this world or beyond it can change that. As the Spirit of God is constantly flowing into every corner of our lives, rushing in it like water, blazing over it like fire, cleansing purifying, washing out the old and ushering in the new. And so just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in the truth, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thanksgiving, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised through your faith in the working of God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Brothers and sisters, we, I ask you today, Lord, to remember your baptism even as we pray. And Lord, we thank you uh, so much for, for the gift of baptism, whether it was one that we can remember as, as uh, teenagers or as adults. Or Lord, we thank you for the faithful parents that may have had us baptized as children. We thank you, Father, for that gift of initiation into your kingdom. We thank you, Father, for that infusing of your Holy Spirit. We ask you, Lord, to send us out today in, in clear light and teaching of that message so that we can share the good news, we can share the hope that we have because of all that you've done for us and in our place. And we thank you, Lord, for that in Jesus' name. Amen.